This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in. Today we're going to tackle the Kyle Rittenhouse case. I'm practically certain that you've heard about this case. This is the story of 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, who in the wake of of the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. There were protests, there were riots, there was looting, there were fires. Kyle Rittenhouse decided to go from his home in Illinois across the border to Kenosha, Wisconsin to stand guard in the effort to protect some businesses that had been victim of the rioting the night before. Things go badly for Kyle. I think it's fair to say that he was attacked. He defends himself with deadly force. And then the crowd turns on him. And he flees in in the process after being attacked again by multiple assailants. He shoots two more people, killing one. Much of this was captured on cell phone footage. There were reporters in the area. There were photographs taken of this incident. I sit down with... Don West, he's National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and an experienced criminal defense attorney, and our friend Steve Moses, who's a veteran of law enforcement and a well-regarded firearms instructor. And we're going to look at this case from a tactical point of view. We're going to look at it from a legal point of view now that Rittenhouse has been charged with multiple serious crimes. And uh, I think what's going to be important to remember here is there are a lot of politics surrounding this case. Uh, A lot of people have very strong feelings about Rittenhouse's behavior on both sides of the political spectrum. We're going to do our best to navigate around the politics, and we're going to look specifically at Rittenhouse's actions in the moment to determine whether we believe, with the facts that we know, whether they were justified or not. Um, But that said, too, I think there's a conversation to be had about what a concealed carrier's responsibility is when it comes to putting themselves in a dangerous situation where they know that the use of deadly force could be required. There's a lot to digest. We're going to break this one up into two parts. So here is the part one of our exploration of the Kyle Rittenhouse case with Don West and Steve Moses. Thanks for listening. I, I gotta ask you, Don, you and I have worked on controversial high-profile self-defense cases before. What did you think of the uh, defense attorney's video that was released two days ago? Well, it's, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that if there are two sides, and there's at least two sides, but two very clear uh, positions on this, that both are scrambling to make their case in the, in the public for either, I suppose, political purposes or in some respects perhaps to 
more level the ground as to what information the general public is exposed to as they begin to filter through the publicly available information. And then I think there's probably some fundraising components to this since uh, Kyle Rittenhouse has a defense fund and the lawyers are very clearly seeking contributions for that fund to offset the legal expenses. So everybody's got a little bit of personal stake in this for one reason or another. And then of course, the whole thing just drips with, uh, with politics. So it, it makes it pretty difficult to sort through if you're trying to be uh, objective uh, the goal being objective as to the known facts and then a more ob objective assessment of those facts. But it's like, was it Yogi Berra that said deja vu all over again? It, uh, deja vu. Well, for you and I who've been involved in the case where there is one impression made in the press at the beginning and then as more facts come out, you start to see, oh, this isn't the same case that everybody's talking about. And you have this yeah. weird thing where the defense argument based on this video, I mean, their accounting of the facts fits very closely with what we saw in the, the criminal complaint. So the stated facts in that criminal complaint, uh, setting aside how they got the charges out of those facts. But if you look just at the criminal complaint, it seems relatively straightforward, not as complete as it would be if all of the information were known, but you're right, it largely tracks the self-defense narrative as uh, promoted by the defense. So it's really, so far, I think, has been a question of interpretation of the known facts or the spin that one uh, party or the other has put on it as opposed to there being revelatory new information. Sure. And so, Steve, after having had a chance to look at uh, all those videos in context, what's, what's your takeaway? Well, I always kind of come back to, did uh, Kyle need to be there? And did he certainly need to be there in the capacity that he was? You know, he was he was armed. Uh, he was appearing on interviews. He was talking about how he was a medic. Uh, I, I, you know, again, I kind of have issues with that. Uh, I think he kind of set himself up for, you know, getting in a place where he now really wishes that he hadn't uh, been or, you know, that he hadn't done. But by the same token, I, I think that he found himself in a situation where he little legitimately did fear for his life and uh, he did what he thought he had to do in order to protect himself. And so I want to, I want to touch on something that you said there and maybe table that idea for a minute and come around to it at the end, after we've had a chance to explore this series of incidents in more detail, but it, it's about this putting himself in the position where he knew conflict was likely. And so what we know is that he's from a town in Illinois that's across the border from Kenosha, from Milwaukee, and he traveled, oh, at least 20 miles to be there 
where he knew that there were businesses that were potentially under siege, businesses that had been damaged in previous nights of protesting. And he mentioned that he was giving interviews, and there's one reporter who is a key witness in this uh, in the criminal complaint who talked to him. And, and Kyle says that basically he's imagines himself a first responder. He's the kind of guy who's going to run to the danger because he feels that he can help, right? And, That's correct. And, and, but then he talks about how he's got this uh, long rifle strapped to his back in case he gets in trouble, he can defend himself. And, and I think what I want to come around to at the end is in virtually all the conversations that we've had about self-defense, we're asking concealed carriers to avoid confrontation, you know, unnecessary confrontations, especially. And I think, Don, you indicated some of the politics that surround this case. I think there's a sense and there's some talk of like vigilante justice or militias or groups of quote unquote guards coming to the defense of property in these riot situations is perhaps there is a time for uh, a a person who feels they need to stand up for something, they they decide they are going to take a risk that's worth taking in their mind where uh, deadly force could be a possible uh, a possible requirement. Well, I, yes, the the backdrop to these protests, of course, as you mentioned, was the shooting of of Jacob Blake, who's a, a young a black man who was shot several times um, by law enforcement, I guess some of which, maybe all of them, in the back as he was leaning into his car. Um, I, I think, and Steve can clarify this, but in law enforcement parlance, he was making a furtive move of some sort. His hands weren't visible. He was disobeying the commands of law enforcement to, first of all, to, to stop so he can be arrested, and secondly, not to go in the car, and then he reached into the car, and at that point, uh, after having been tased a couple of times without any real effect, he was shot uh, several times, I think as many as, as seven times, and while not killed, he, by all accounts, was paralyzed and perhaps lifelong paralysis as a result of it, and that shooting, is, was being portrayed in the media as another example of uh, systemic racism in the police department, police brutality. It sort of stair-stepped into ongoing protests that had been taking place very visibly and on some occasions violently around the country following the, the death of George Floyd. So the whole nation has been a bit of a tinderbox um, for that narrative. And we can certainly talk about, although I'm not sure we have a lot to contribute on on that narrative aspect of this, but uh, to say that the protests in Kenosha 
sort of mirrored some of the protests that had been going on around the country for weeks and weeks and weeks, mostly peaceful protests, but on occasion becoming more violent, becoming destructive of property, including arson and looting, even posing physical um, risk to other participants in the protest or law enforcement. So it was really a volatile thing, and this had been going on now in Kenosha for a few nights when Kyle Rittenhouse decided that he would go there to help out. Uh, in order to, to do that, he had to travel from his home in Illinois to uh, Wisconsin. He spent part of the day uh, removing graffiti from some public buildings, a school perhaps, and uh, took his medic kit with him and according to the news reports was provided his long gun by a friend. That's never been clear to me except it's been claimed that he that wasn't his gun and he didn't take it with him. But by his own statements, he clearly went there and positioned himself as part of a larger group who was there to stem some of the violence, to protect some of the property, and from his perspective as a, someone with some limited medical training, I think when he was a lifeguard, to help people that, that got hurt. So that was sort of the context of it. So he made all of those decisions to purposefully put himself in, in the middle of it. And when we see the video of various points in time throughout the protest, the night of that shooting uh, that he was involved in, the shootings that he was involved in, you can see how chaotic and volatile the whole thing was. A number of people dressed similarly to Kyle carrying long guns, other very loud, aggressive protesters, some lighting fires. The whole thing was, I think, on the precipice of just blowing up. And of course, why we're talking about this today is it did, literally. Kyle Rittenhouse wound up shooting three people before the night was over. Steve, do me a favor, set the stage for for me from what you saw in the video and what you read in the police reports about this first confrontation that Rittenhouse gets in. This is going to be with uh, a guy named Joseph Rosenbaum. Okay, and everything I'm going to say here is very much my impression. I just always feel like anytime I look at anything that's been provided by the media that I'm either being, I'm either missing something or I'm being manipulated. But by the same token, uh, there was a, an initial confrontation uh, between uh, uh, Rosenbaum and another, uh, I, I don't want to use the word militia, I don't even want to use the word counter-protester, but there was someone... They're referring there, to themselves as guards. Guards, okay. Well, I'm going to use the term guard, self-appointed guard. Yeah. There was a confrontation between them. Uh, up from what I understand... Uh, Rosenbaum had attempted to light a dumpster. Uh, I think the, the intent was to maybe push that into a building. Uh, the guard, uh, as, I, as I understand that, extinguished that. Uh, at that point, uh, Rosenbaum became uh, apparently enraged. Uh, he was using profanity. Uh, he was actually saying such things as, shoot me, shoot me. And at some point, he 
went after uh, Rittenhouse. Now, I've, I've read perhaps that Rittenhouse might have done something that caused his attention. Maybe uh, Rittenhouse was moving uh, with a fire extinguisher. Perhaps his intent was to also, you know, extinguish a fire. But uh, regardless, I understand that Rosenbaum began pursuing uh, Rittenhouse. Uh, he threw something at Rittenhouse, unsure as to what it was. You know, I've heard things go, it was a Molotov cocktail, other people saying it was a plastic bag. Uh, whatever it was, it did not seem to cause any damage to Rittenhouse. Uh, Rittenhouse, while attempting to flee, uh, ran in, it looked like between two cars. And from the report that I read, there was a crowd on the other side that blocked his path, which basically left him no place to go, in which he turned around and uh, Rosenbaum at that time moved in and according to one witness, attempted to grab the barrel of that rifle, at which time uh, Rittenhouse uh, responded, and I believe he may have shot as many as four, fired as many as four rounds at uh, Rosenbaum, and um, Rosenbaum fell to the ground. So I believe from there, Rosenbaum uh, offered to, you know, assist medically, uh, uh, Rittenhouse, uh, that is, offered to assist Rosenbaum medically, uh, and I think that was pretty much the, the, the end of that particular confrontation. Right, yeah, so, and the, the, one of the key witnesses that you're talking about was actually the reporter had spoken to him and recorded him just moments before this encounter happens, and he's gone on TV, and he spoke to the police and described Rosenbaum uh closing on Rittenhouse and lunging was some of the terms I've heard him use to say as he reached for the rifle. Uh, my understanding is that uh, Rosenbaum was shot uh, four times and that there were uh, maybe a total of eight shots fired, but they may not all have been from Rittenhouse's rifle because there are other armed people in the area. And and to add on to what you said, Steve, I... I he, you, we see from that video that his attorneys released that he's sort of standing aside as other people are addressing Rosenbaum, who's on the ground on his back, and then you start to hear things from them like "We're going to get that guy," and uh, Rittenhouse realizes he's in danger and runs. Meanwhile, he called a friend of his on the cell phone uh, and announced that he had just killed somebody. And, and that's, I think that's a great way to wrap up the, the first event. So I, I want to ask you, Steve, and, and, and Don, real quick, a lot of these cases that we talk about, most of these cases, in fact, that we talk about deal with a uh, armed person shooting an unarmed person. The, you know, these are the most controversial self-defense cases and the problem with that is we have this disparity of force. And I'd like you to talk about that for a moment in the context of this case. Well, the disparity of force being someone with a gun has lethal force immediately available. And as soon as they fire that gun, they have deployed lethal force. So firing a gun is deadly force as a, as a matter of law. However, 
the right to use deadly force is not dependent on you yourself being faced by someone who also has a gun or a knife, but merely the ability and the opportunity and the intent to use force sufficient to cause you great bodily harm or death. That's really the definition of deadly force, is force sufficient to cause great bodily harm or death. We have a really interesting dynamic because we know legally the person doing the attacking doesn't have to be armed, but they have to be capable and able to deploy sufficient force to give the defender a reasonable apprehension that they need to act immediately to avoid being seriously injured or killed. We have, though, in a mob-type context, uh, the very chaos of the moment creates a different view of, I think, a different view of whether the person being attacked that has the gun is facing uh, a deadly force threat. There are other people typically involved. There may be additional chaos created by the circumstances that is reasonably interpreted as uh, escalating or deadly force. And of course, it's the perception of the person being attacked, whether they are being attacked to that degree that they need to defend themselves, whether the other person has a, a weapon or not. In this instance, Rosenbaum probably didn't have a weapon other than the bag that he threw and whatever was in the bag. On the other hand, uh, this reporter fellow, uh, Richard McGinnis, had a pretty good look at how this thing unfolded clearly saw Rittenhouse being chased, saw Rosenbaum chasing him, saw the presence of others that were armed around them. In fact, just moments before Rittenhouse shot Rosenbaum, someone else discharged a weapon as Rittenhouse was running away. Sure In my mind, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's reasonable that Rittenhouse could have factored that in, thinking that he was being shot at at that point, either by Rosenbaum or somebody uh, that was a compatriot of his of some sort. So he's being surrounded think, by an angry crowd. He hears a gunshot, and now he's got this guy reaching for his rifle. I don't think that in most circumstances, standing alone, the fact of somebody reaching for your gun is in and of itself sufficient to use deadly force to, to shoot them. But if there's other stuff that helps make it pretty clear what their intent is, then the idea of reaching for the gun to disarm you, I think if it's consistent with the other things that are going on, certainly would give you reason to believe that the purpose, especially if there have been other attacks uh, along the way or people chasing you when you've clearly made it clear that you don't want to engage, if someone's reaching for the gun, it's certainly, I think, part of that um, computation, if you will, as to an assessment of what's going on. It's reasonable to think their, their goal is to take that gun from you so they can use it on, your, on you. So, so you and I have I think, talked before in these cases where sometimes, you know, your gun, if it's wrestled away from you, becomes the gun, and all of a sudden you're in a world of hurt. Yeah, we don't have video of that one specifically. We do have McGinnis 
making it clear that Rosenbaum was reaching for the gun, trying to get the gun after chasing him, uh, after there being clearly uh, a confrontation and an attack. Uh, the idea of taking someone's gun and whether that rises to the level of you being allowed legally to defend yourself with deadly force makes it a little more, we can discuss it a little easier in the context of the later events that are actually on video. But I think when you put all of that together, the fact that Rosenbaum wasn't absolutely armed at that moment, once he attacks Rittenhouse, once he throws stuff at him, once he chases him, and then once he reaches for the gun, my thought is that Rittenhouse, regardless of all of the circumstances under which he finds himself at that moment, he would have a reasonable belief that a deadly force threat was imminent. Steve, from a tactical point of view, you got a, a long gun like this, Smith & Wesson AR-15 style rifle, and you're being attacked by an otherwise unarmed person. How are you handling this situation? Well, if you have the physicality and the skills which, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, police officers and, and trained concealed carriers do, you, you possibly had the option of uh, retaining that farm. In many, many instances, uh, there's a high probability that someone that gets their hands on that gun, gets the muzzle diverted, uh, and is physically stronger. And when I looked at, you know, just the, the, the two, Rittenhouse compared to Rosenbaum, you know, Rosenbaum definitely looked like he was more physically capable than Rittenhouse. Uh, I believe that there was a very good chance that his life was in danger. Uh, in some instances, uh, people that take tactical rifle courses, uh, when they are in danger of losing a long gun, someone has seized the muzzle, they feel like they have no other options, they can actually lever the muzzle up in the butt of the gun then often by just taking a knee and then basically you're literally shooting the attacker off the gun so whether that is what took place i do not i i, I don't know but i could definitely you know understand uh, the concern that Rittenhouse would have under those circumstances, especially in light of what Rosenbaum had said. Uh, he was chasing him, which is, you know, uh, there was in a crowd. I, I feel like he had a very, you know, sincere, legitimate fear for his life. Yeah, and Don, I, I heard you, you know, there's a lot of facts that we don't know, and you and I, we, we hate making legal conclusions before you know, things have gone through a court and we've had a chance to see what gets in and what gets out and, and have a complete picture. But I heard you make a tentative uh, assessment that there's a, a at least a good argument for Rittenhouse that he had reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm in this situation. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think so. The Of course, in the calmer setting of the jury box, since he is now being prosecuted for that shooting as well as the others, the jury will have the opportunity to consider far more evidence than is currently available now. And um, the opportunity, of course, to 
really drill into what was going on at that moment in order to determine if under those circumstances that Rittenhouse acted, acted reasonably. Uh, I don't see anything when we look at the moments leading up to the shooting and the actual shooting itself of, of Rosenbaum that jumps out to me that would suggest that it was unreasonable. I mean, I don't like the idea that a 17-year-old kid was there with a long gun expecting there to be violence, otherwise he wouldn't have felt the need to have the gun with him to start with. There's a lot of things that I, I think um, he has been already criticized and will continue to be criticized for some of that decision making. He'll be criticized for calling his friend afterwards instead to say that I just shot somebody instead of, yes, yeah. sure, instead of 911. On the other hand, um, he was clearly retreating, he was trying to get away, he was avoiding it, um, and that is consistent throughout. Uh, while he may have contributed to the, the, the event starting by just showing up uh, in these circumstances, at the same time, once, it, once he was personally attacked, I don't see anything that strikes me of him being uh, grossly unreasonable in his reaction. Tragic, nonetheless, but, but not yeah. unreasonable in the sense that would defeat his self-defense claim. I think it's important that he was, at all times, seemed to be trying to retreat from the aggressor there. Steve, I, I want to ask you, like, is a... Uh, did he draw attention to himself? Did he make himself a target by having that conspicuous long gun? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the, there's, there's a couple of reasons I think that's a problem. One, in a situation like that, uh, you are basically telling these other parties that I'm here and I'm here because you're here and I, 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 I may oppose you. So uh, again, if he felt like he was in danger, he, he, you know, but the only way it was safe was if he brought a gun. Well, obviously, he just proved that that didn't change anything. He was still in great danger. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big, if, if a concealed carrier has to go into an area that he or she has to go uh, and they just have no choice uh, and they can't get out of there, uh, in most of the instances, having a long gun in your, uh, in your possession is not a good a good idea because a lot of times it not only attracts the attentions in this case of the people that were you know opposing a written house stance, but it also causes concerned citizens to say, oh, I have a man with a gun, and call the police. And also the police have no idea who the good guys are and the bad guys are. And until you know you've confirmed without a doubt that you're not a threat, they're going to consider you a threat. So I just believe that there was just no good reason whatsoever for him to bring a long gun in addition to just kind of the retention issues that I had mentioned earlier in that it is just very much easier, especially for, you know, two or more people to strip a long gun from a person's possession than it is a handgun. So I just, I, I just you know, see no good reason that he needed to be there and he certainly didn't need to be there with a the gun. Yeah, and not long ago, the three of us talked about the Alexander Weiss case from Minnesota. And in this case, it's sort of uh, in the aftermath of uh, automobile crash and the uh, aggressors have been closing in on Weiss, 
who pulls out his pistol and points it down and diagonal in but he's it's a defensive display uh, but not a very good one we concluded and we decided that the aggressors they even said well go ahead and shoot me then didn't believe weiss was willing to use the weapon uh with deadly force and basically called his bluff which you know that guy got shot so i guess he was wrong uh, and this is what I think happens here with uh, Rosenbaum. I, I can't imagine if he believed this kid was willing to use this high-powered rifle that he would have gone charging at it. Do you think there's... And even uh, uh, the reporter, Richard McGinnis, on air, he kind of indicated he didn't think that Rittenhouse was handling the rifle very well. I, I think he shows he handled it pretty well later, but... Are there signs there that if... Did you detect any of that, Steve? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, when a person displays competence with a handgun and an obvious confidence in their abilities, uh, they tend to be taken serious. Uh, the other, you know, person that they may be having a conflict with or perhaps, you know, they, they has questionable intent towards that person is way less likely to go ahead and, you know, try to, you know, engage that person for fear of, you know, being, you know, injured or killed. So, Don, once he flees that scene uh, with some suspicion that now he's going to have a mob chasing him down, uh, th there must be some time that passes, but pretty soon we pick up from another cell phone video that captures pretty much the rest of what happens. Can you walk us through what your impression was of the rest of this video? Uh, yes, certainly, Sean. At the point where Rosenbaum is shot and on the ground, um, as you pointed out earlier, Rittenhouse seemed to hang around to see if he could uh, help in some way. Uh, Rosenbaum was shot, I think you said, four times. The head wound is the one that got everyone's attention, but it was later determined that that was relatively superficial. He had uh, some internal organ damage, I think, that ultimately caused his death. But they wouldn't have known that then. They were uh, Many of the people standing right there were trying to render aid, but then it became turned, uh, their anger turned again on Rittenhouse. People were yelling at him saying things that we could later hear about beating him up and, and getting him to the point that he felt, no doubt, that he couldn't stay. He had to get away or his life was going to continue to be in danger. He leaves, he makes the call, and then there is some distance, but it's evident as he's trying to get away from this crowd, uh, the crowd purposefully continues to chase him. And uh, it gets to the point that he's got a bit of a lead on the crowd that's chasing him, but someone catches up to him or joins in and is able to hit him or strike him in such a way that his hat uh, is knocked away. And then as he continues to get away, try to get away from what seems to be several members of this crowd that are voicing verbal threats against him, he stumbles and he falls. I don't know what the distance would be uh, measuring it, but my sense of it is at least maybe a half a block, maybe as much as a block from where Rittenhouse was shot. 
and all of a sudden, a Rosenbaum was shot, and Rittenhouse yeah. is on the ground. Uh, he still has his gun with him, but he's sort of on the ground and is now being surrounded and specifically attacked by three people, not including whoever it was that knocked his hat off. The first attacker seems to be trying to use some sort of jump kick or drop kick aimed towards his head as mm -hmm. he's on the ground. I, I don't get the impression he had a lot of contact, but I believe Rittenhouse may have fired his gun at that point. And then the fellow ultimately the, that died with the skateboard very clearly and separately attacks him and according to some of the videos and the still images that were gathered is able to make some contact with his head or neck and then that person in addition to that contact uh, grabs the gun and yeah, there's pretty Anthony clear Huber evidence of him that we're talking about there Huber Huber is pulling on the gun trying to wrestle it away from him at which point um, Rittenhouse fires the gun I think it hits him the projectile hits him in the chest. He winds up sort of walking or stumbling away and dies. There's this other fellow whose last name I can't pronounce. Gage, Gage Grosskreutz? Yeah, Grosskreutz. Grosskreutz. That right. Yeah. And he's sort of standing there when Huber is shot with a gun, has a handgun displayed that he then sort of pulls back and acts as though he is withdrawing. And then sort of all of a sudden takes a couple of steps towards Rittenhouse with the gun displayed, at which point Rittenhouse shoots at him, hits him on the gun arm around the bicep, and uh, Grosskwitz is pretty seriously injured at that point and, and retreats. Interestingly, I think, though, is behind him is another guy that appears to be sort of part of this lead group that's trying to catch up with Rittenhouse. And he just all of a sudden stands there and puts his hands up and disengages. And I, I want to point that out because Rittenhouse didn't fire at him and he didn't do anything further to attempt to attack Rittenhouse. But what I think is important when you're assessing sort of this whole scenario is the fact that Rittenhouse did not see him as a threat to warrant uh, the use of force. So he didn't shoot him even though he was only a few feet away at that point. And I think that factors into how discreet and how clear each of the previous shots were in the context of whether he was facing an imminent threat. Yeah, and even so, as he's anyway, running that's, away those from are that, my impressions. And even as he's running away from that, there are shots fired, and he, he doesn't turn around to re-engage. He, he, he sees his police ahead, and he's trying to, to get there. Uh, Steve, I want to ask you, did, did, was there anything else from... Uh, that video that stood out to you particularly? Uh, well, the thing is, is that uh, he was running. It was really kind of like at a, you know, a, a jogging pace. Yeah, he wasn't uh, sprinting away, was he? He, was... he wasn't sprinting. He wasn't sprinting. And he continued to be pursued while that was taking place. I believe after he engaged... Uh, the, the, the last protester, at some point, he actually turned around and started walking backwards, which yeah. was, I, I think that was something that caused the, uh, the re remainder of the crowd possible concern. 
you know, there's a possibility uh, had he done that the entire time, uh, perhaps some of this other stuff would not have been sued. Uh, the very fact that he was running might have just, you know, kind of triggered that, uh, that, that chase instinct that, you know, mammals for that particular, you know, oftentimes will, if, if a, you know, prey, perceived, perceived prey starts running off, well, it just engages that. It can be dogs chasing you on a bike, chasing joggers. Uh, I believe in part just the very fact that the way he was moving away just kind of indicated uh, a definite, you know, unwillingness to, you know, dynamically engage. As soon as it appeared that, uh, no, he would, and he was, you know, uh, okay, watching his six, that is covering your six, you know, being a little bit more 360 aware, it seemed that the crowd uh, attempted, or, or they, they kind of backed off a little bit. Of course, on the other hand, uh, the police were starting to, you know, move in at that point, and they may have just felt like, okay, this this is a good time for us to, you know, get it, get away from here. But those were just little things that I picked up. Don, one thing you'd mentioned to me, and it, it's a matter of perspectives, right? And so many of these shootings that we look at, we've got these two different worlds colliding. People have got completely different perceptions of what's happening going on. From Rittenhouse's perspective, he's come here to help. He's come here to protect property. He's come here to stop looting and rioting. A looter and rioter attacked him. He had no choice in his mind but to shoot to escape. And now the mob's turned on him and he's running away to get out of there and to get police. You know, somebody with a, the phone camera said, well, you know, you running? You running? He said, yeah, I'm going to get the cops after he had shot uh, Rosenbaum. But from the perspective of the crowd, some of them maybe there to cause problems some of them there as part of the protest uh you have an active shooter with a rifle running rampant through town and you had brought up the question of what were the motivations of the people who are going out of their way to accost a man carrying a very powerful rifle uh absolutely absolutely uh, I believe that all three of those uh, persons that were engaged uh, had uh, violent criminal histories. And it was kind of interesting to me that he was, you know, attacked by these three people. He engaged them and all of them had violent criminal histories. And so what that tells me is that uh, there's probably a pretty good likelihood that crowds and, you know, protests and, and, and mobs of this nature kind of attract those people with that kind of background. And um, a lot of people that have a uh, criminal history, especially one that involves violence, uh, have impulse issues or impulse control issues. In many instances, they would say that's what got them in trouble with the uh, system in the first place. And so it doesn't come as any surprise to me that when something happened, and you have a certain person that uh, not only is comfortable with violence, but probably has employed it against others, would then feel like, oh, I am justified in taking this action. And basically, for all practical purposes, viewing themselves as the good guy. You know, uh, one of my instructors once said, said, you know, Steve, 
nobody thinks they're the bad guy, including the, uh, the, the bad guys. And I kind of thought, oh, that kind of makes sense. And so I think it makes it uh, all the more clear to me is that it's not necessary for me to, you know, understand what the other person's motivations are. Uh, some of them are just going to be very, very different from me. And I think William April once said, you know, and these people, they don't need your consent or approval uh, in order to attack you. They will do it without it. From the idea of, of what Steve is talking about, you really don't know what the other person is thinking, and they mm -hmm. are in control of their own thoughts and behaviors and reactions, um, notwithstanding or regardless of what the real circumstances are or what the lawful response might be. And my guess is that maybe none of the people that actually physically attacked Rittenhouse there in this second sequence actually saw what happened with Rittenhouse. Or if they saw it, they may have only seen a little bit and of it, or they may have just gone there to help render aid and didn't see any part of what led up to the actual shooting. So they are probably, in large part, chasing him out of ignorance because somebody said, hey, he just shot this guy and they want to get him. So do they want to get him to disarm him so that he can't shoot anybody else? Do they want to get him because they're threatening to beat him up? You can hear some of that. Um, to punish him for what they believe he just did and do they want to shoot him or kill him for what they perceive that he did. So from Rittenhouse's perspective though, it doesn't really matter what the others were thinking unless their thoughts translates into behavior that he should have recognized as being something other than what he obviously perceived it to be. When they're yelling, beat him, get him, chasing him, uh, knocking him down, swinging uh, a weapon. The skateboard is clearly a weapon in this instance, drawing guns, all in the, trying to kick him, all in the context of, of him trying to get away and uh, them basically not being content with that, but rather to become the aggressors themselves. I think that Rittenhouse's perception that they were his attackers and that they intended to seriously injure him or, or kill him is reasonable. And that probably doesn't really matter or depend very much on what ultimately uh, is, comes out of the Rittenhouse shooting. That, that one's pretty problematic to me because we know a lot, a lot less about it. There's no clear evidence. And when you pointed out earlier, Sean, there could be simply a disproportional uh, use of force analysis. And that for even the, if for the shooting Rosenbaum of Rosenbaum, completely, the first shooting? Yeah, sure. And, and the, the jury could find that he had threatened him, that he was a clear imminent threat, that he intended to beat him up, or that he even intended to take his gun away, but he didn't intend to use it on anybody. And if it didn't rise to a life-threatening threat, uh, a, a use of deadly force, then they could find that Rittenhouse was allowed to defend himself, but he just wasn't allowed to use deadly force. Uh, so that's how things could align almost perfectly, and yet the use of deadly force could wind up not to be justified there. Although I don't think that's going to be the outcome, nor should it be. That's certainly uh, the prerogative of, the, of the fact finders. It's a possibility when you get mm -hmm. a jury. 
Yeah, yes. Oh, sure. Sure. All right, that's the end of part one. In our part two of the Kyle Rittenhouse case, we're going to look deeper into the second and third shootings, look at the legal challenges that Rittenhouse faces, and and we'll talk about the responsibility that comes with the right to carry. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care.